James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Good morning. All right, I want to say a, a quick word about your disposition right now. I don't mean your specific one. I, I guess I mainly mean what your disp- disposition ought to be. As you come to the Word of God in any form, and particularly when it's preached. Okay, so here it is. Uh, we are all meant to be brought to maturity in Christ. In fact, if your hope is in Jesus, one day you will be brought to complete maturity in Jesus. All of your affections will be exactly what they're meant to be. All of your actions will be exactly what they're meant to be. That is those of Christ Jesus. But you're not there yet. Bad news, you're not there yet. Neither am I. I'm not up here because I'm there and I'm trying to get you guys to join me in my full sanctification. I need it as much as you do. I have the privilege of sitting in the text for probably 20 extra hours. You you get 40 minutes on Sunday, and I get 15 or so, 20 hours in the week to sit in this passage I I give you briefly, and I know I need it even more than you. Okay, so what does that have to do with anything? It's it's pretty easy to sit here and and sort of maybe listen for something new or 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 maybe tune out because you were up later last night and you're tired, or you've read James a bunch and you, you feel like you have a decent handle on this or something. Okay, but what what might you do this morning? What what do, do I understand as your pastor, your friend, your brother in Christ, would be the, the best way to think and, and approach the next 40 minutes? Here's what I think it is. I, I've been blessed or rather cursed with the ears of like a, a six-year-old child. I don't mean the size. I mean, they're prone to, they're prone to ear infections. Like I get more ear infections than any adult should. And so when that happens, I need an antibiotic and I go to the doctor and my ears hurt and it stinks and I can't hear and it's just really uncomfortable. And the doctor gives me the antibiotic. And then there's this moment where I take them and I'm just thinking, okay, any second now, kick in, kick in, kick in, kick in. And, and the hope is that it would be instant. I, I feel the need. It's not what it ought to be. It's a, it's a deep, deeply felt need because usually I wait too long and, and it's just weird and you don't want to know the details, but, but, but there's this longing for it to kick in. And it takes, I don't know, it can take an hour, a day, or whatever. It just, however long it takes. And then there's this sense of gladness. 
There's this leaning into this. That's kind of the negative way. Positively, if you've ever tried to improve at something, my, my sort of frame of reference is running and you, you, you train and you train and you train and you sort of get stuck at a certain time and you want to, you want to get a little faster. And so you, you, you come up with a different workout and you're just waiting for that workout to kick in and your time to drop and you're hoping that it will. And generally it does. And okay. All of that is how you ought to be listening to a sermon. All that is how you ought to come to the word of God in your quiet times. There's this recognition of something greater that you're called to that you don't yet have. And so you're leaning way in. You're you're leaning way in when you come to the word of God with a clear understanding of the goal, which is Christ's likeness, and a clear thankfulness that this is the means God has given to that end. So that's all bonus content Lean in, Grace Church. Lean in now and, and always as you press into Christ's likeness. So this morning's sermon is part two of two on James 4, 1 through 10. The big question from last week was what causes conflicts in the church? You look around, and I, I hope none of you are know, know this right now. Certainly you've known it to some degree at some point in the past, but these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. The blood of Jesus is covered them of all of their sins. You will spend eternity together praising God. But sometimes conflict arises. What causes that? That was the question of last week. Two big questions this week with one answer. Here are the two big questions. How do we avoid that? (laughs) How do we prevent that from happening at Grace Church or in, in any church? And what does God mean us to do when it does happen in a world like ours, it's fallen and hearts like ours that are still being redeemed. There will be conflict. What do we do when it happens? The main point of this sermon is to help you see James's singular answer to those two questions. And here it is simple to understand, even if at times hard to live out. Here it is the primary God given solution to conflict in the church among Christians is repentance enabled by the grace of God. Repentance in us enabled by grace from God. James unpacks this in really specific, helpful, clear ways. We're going to look at all that. Let me back up one more second before we get there. Last week, verses 1 through 5, we saw the perspective of James's readers. They knew they had a problem. They knew that it had a source. And they thought they had a solution. What was that? Their their problem from their perspective was not getting what they wanted. They wanted certain things. They weren't getting them. That was the problem. The cause was the people within their churches were keeping them from getting these things from as far as they could tell. And the solution was to come to blows, to throw punches, to throw insults, to yell at each other, to quarrel, to fight, to go after one another to get out of them or to keep them from keeping one another from getting what they wanted. Well, here's the key. We saw this last week as well. James James thoroughly and emphatically rejected all that. They got the problem wrong. They got the cause wrong. They got the solution wrong. James even went so far as to rebuke them sharply for it. And the sharpest rebuke we'll see again today. More importantly still, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, last week we saw a different explanation of the problem, which is that they were fighting amongst each other in a manner that was inconsistent with what God had called them to and made them to be. That was the real problem. They were not acting like Christians. 
They were dishonoring God and corrupting their community. That was the problem. The cause was not other people, but themselves, their own sin, their own warring passions. This morning again, then, we get to see the solution. What what were they meant to do with all that? It was happening for them. What were they meant to do with it? So that's where we've been. Today, we're going to see the solution. Before we get there, I'm going to pray. Before, before we get there, after I pray, we're going to talk about that, that specific warring passion. There was one specific warring passion. I ended last week's sermon by just naming it. I'm going to open that up for us a little bit more this morning, namely friendship with the world. There was a specific thing, friendship with the world, mainly causing these warring passions and therefore the conflict that flowed out of it. I'm going to start with that and then get to the solution. So let's pray. Let's pray that all of this would have the end of ending conflict, helping us to heal from it and preventing any more from surfacing. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you when it's broad, and we thank you when it's specific. We thank you when you give us high-level explanations of things and really down-to-earth, nitty-gritty, practical ways to deal with them. We get both this morning. I pray that as we all long for, or I guess let me say it a little differently. God, I pray right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, this room would be filled with an infusion of longing to be mature in Christ. God, I I know that you've made us in such a way that we're always longing for something. We can't not be longing for something. Even if it's just peace and quiet, or even if it's just a minute to ourselves, or even if it's just for some good thing, mainly you make us to long to be like Jesus. Our main mission on earth is to be like Jesus and to call people to be like Jesus, to be his disciples by proclaiming the gospel. God, right now, would you please, by the power of your spirit, even through your word, infuse us with a fresh longing to be like Jesus and help us to see that this text, this passage, and really all of your word is one of your most significant means to that end. So as much as we long to be like Jesus, let this let this text cause us to rejoice. And to the degree that we don't rightly long to be like Jesus, forgive us of that sin and fill us with that now. Let us not coast for the next 30 minutes. Let us lean in and run faster. Let us listen more thoroughly and pray more earnestly. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, James 4.1, what causes quarrels and fights among you? He doesn't wait long. He answers it. He says, is it not that your passions are at war within you? Okay, before getting to the solution, he names very particularly one particular cause of the warring passions that caused the conflict. Again, friendship with the world. Hear it again. You adulterous people... You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that Scripture says he earns jealously over the spirit of those, over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? Throughout the Old Testament, we spent time in Hosea. You saw it all over in there. Throughout the Old Testament, God regularly 
referred to the Israelites as adulterous, prostitutes, whores, when they went after false gods. In this, God was pointing out in this, in this dramatic language and this harsh language, God was pointing out both the fact and the seriousness of spiritual infidelity. Grace, spiritual infidelity is the most serious of all sins. Instead of remaining faithful to God as the one true God, Abraham's offspring regularly chased after the pagan gods of their pagan neighbors. This is spiritual adultery, and again, it is the most serious kind of sin. James knew this. James was exceedingly familiar with this language. He had read it his whole life. He used the same harsh language to accuse his readers of their own spiritual infidelity. You adulterous people. Remember, he had said, my brothers, my beloved brothers, my siblings in Christ. That's how he referred to them to this point here. You adulterous people. Don't miss this, Grace. Don't miss this. In doing so, James was pointing James's point was that their quarreling and fighting flowed ultimately out of a lack of faithfulness to God. Think of whatever quarrels you've been in with other Christians. Ultimately, they flow from a lack of faithfulness to God of spiritual adultery, spiritual infidelity. Whatever you have experienced or will experience, it flows out of this, James says. Don't miss this. Their sins were vertical before they were ever horizontal. Their problem was vertical before it was ever horizontal. In other words, at its very heart, the final cause, this is you, this is me. What do we do? So, some problem happens that we're engaged in, this, this bickering, this quarreling, this fighting, and our first thought is almost always, they're the problem. <laughs> or the problem is some horizontal thing. But James is correcting that for us. If we're ever going to find true help and hope and a solution to it, it begins here with this acknowledgement. At its very heart, the final cause, there are other parts to it. It's not only this, but the final cause of conflict among James's readers and among Christians in general was not anything between them. It was rather between them and God. Indeed, their conflict was not ultimately caused as they suspected by one another. It was caused, James said, ultimately by their own individual lack of faithfulness to God. Adultery. But what specifically was this adulterous act? Where specifically were they being faithless? Knowing that answer can help us examine our own hearts better and better apply James's solution to this problem. Their adulterousness, their faithlessness, their spiritual infidelity, James wrote, was friendship with the world. That is, the cause of the conflict among them was that they loved certain things of the world more than they loved each other, and adulterously and more seriously still, they loved the things of the world even more than God. They loved the things God had made more than the people that God had made and God himself who made them. In the end, that's why they were willing to fight one another to get these things from the world that they were having trouble getting. There are two things for us to see here before we get to James's solution from this, the spiritual adultery flowing out of friendship with the world. First, in simplest terms, 
We got to get this because we have seeds of this all over in our lives, Grace, that we, we've got to get rid of. This is, this is spiritual roundup for these weeds of friendship in the world or with the world. In simplest terms, friendship with the world means allowing anything outside of God to shape or hold our affections. What does James mean by friendship with the world? He means anything outside of God that we allow to shape or hold our affections. Let me say it a little differently. Friendship with the world means establishing our sense of right and wrong, purpose and meaning, value and worth, and anything other than God's nature and word. In the end, friendship with the world is a rejection of God as God and as our supreme treasure. That's the first thing to get. What is friendship with the world? Second, friendship with the world is entirely incompatible with friendship with God. You can't have both. I have friends who are evangelical freers and Presbyterians, and that's cool, right? We can do that. You can have, you can have friendship with people in different denominations. I, I have friends who are fans of the Vikings and fans of the Packers. You can do that. You're allowed to have friends in different camps in that way. You are not allowed to have friendship with God and friendship with the world. That's why James said, do you not know, Grace Church, do you not know that friendship with the world, allowing anything other than God or outside of God to shape and hold your affections, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friends with the world, enemies of God. Friend of God, enemy of the world in this sense. And that is why James concluded, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of God makes himself, by doing so, an enemy of God. It's also why John wrote in 1 John, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, friendship of God, is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, very similar to James here, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but from the world. All right, so here's here's the summary of everything James has done for us to this point. Here we go. His main points, his readers had forged or maintained some measure of friendship with the world. They're Christians, but for some reason, in some way, they'd forged and maintained some type of friendship with the world. This friendship with the world was causing their passions to war against one another inside of them. Their desires were at war with one another. They they had professed love for God and allegiance to God, but having forged and established friendship in the world, there's a battle going on inside of them, and their love for the things of the world were winning out. Third, that their worldly friendship caused warring passions were ultimately to blame in their conflict with one another. And lastly, All of this put them at odds, not only or even mainly with one another, but more significantly with God, as this is spiritual adultery. So he's reframing all of this for them. In short, James told them that they needed to choose between continuing on in these aspects of friendship with the world or in their friendship with God. Couldn't have both. God, God's people cannot have both. They are mutually exclusive. This is James's main argument. You want you want your your conflict among among or within the church to die? It begins here with acknowledging that it is 
Friendship with God and friendship with the world are incompatible, and friendship with the world always leads to conflict. So in the hope and expectation that his readers would, in fact, decide to turn from their spiritual adultery, from their friendship with the world, and return to faithfulness to God, James concluded this section, verses 6 through 10, by shining a bright light on the path to repentance. So they had gotten off the path that God had given them of friendship with God. And James is saying, come back. And here's how you do it. <laughs> here's the bright, here's a bright light on the path to repentance, to turning away from this, which will heal your conflict, but most, more importantly, restore your fellowship with God. All right. So as we turn there now, Grace, consider your conflicts. What conflicts do you have among believers? What conflicts do you have with the people of God? Consider them. Draw them to mind. Painful as it might be, draw them to mind. Consider that they flow mainly from friendship with the world. Recognize that that is incompatible with fellowship with God and with man. Ask yourself, what do I love more than God? What am I looking to before I'm looking to God? Where are you getting, where am I getting my sense of purpose and meaning and truth and justice and goodness outside of God? Where is your wisdom in handling this or framing this or understanding this? The, the, James's readers believed they were wise in assessing the situation. But we really think, for many of them, the problem was they wanted to teach in the church, but they weren't equipped to, and someone was recognizing that and stopping them, and they were getting angry. It was a, a basically good desire that they had. So they felt justified in being angry and bickering with one another to get some good thing. It was their own wisdom. That was not the wisdom of God. So where is your sense of wisdom coming from the wisdom of this age rather than the wisdom of the God of all things? Where do you desire something that was created more than the one who created it? Where do you find, where you find those things in you? And you find them in you. You do. And me too. Where you find them, eventually they will come out in conflict when somebody gets in the way of us getting those things. And ultimately, you'll find conflict with God himself, for this is spiritual adultery. So have this in mind. Have a real conflict in mind among Christians. And then think through this in that lens, through that lens. With all of that, we've got a sermon and a half under our belts now on the problems. Now let's get to the solution of all this. How do we escape the, the snare of friendship with the world how do we prevent it from happening, end it, and heal from it? Again, James's answer to all of that is grace-filled repentance. But both take a particular shape. Both the grace and the repentance for James take a particular form. Let me say that again. If you want to prevent this type of conflict in your life, end it, and heal from it, the path James gives is repentance, not of the other person, but of yourself. This isn't James telling you to long for them to repent, although you should do that too. But it's first, at least, James telling you to repent and me to repent. It's grace-filled, enabled repentance, not by your own strength, but by God's. We'll look first at the grace of God that enables this, and then the path through which it flows. All right, the grace of God. First and foremost, it is the grace 
of God that prevents, ends, and repairs the damage caused by conflict within the church. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. (laughs) Therefore, it says he gives grace to the proud. Or he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Don't miss this. Don't minimize this. Lean into this. God's grace is our only but certain hope for every conflict. Only but certain. It's our only hope in that conflict help doesn't ultimately come to you and I through more knowledge, through more power, through more discipline, or through anything else in us. When it when it comes to preventing and overcoming conflict in the church, and when it comes to healing and restoring, being restored from its effects, our hope is not in our cunning. You might be thinking, what can I do or what can happen? It's not in our cunning. It's not in our plans or scheming. It's not in our good intentions. We might want good things, but it's not in that. It's not even in a forgiving spirit. Hope and help and conflict come only from the unmerited kindness of God. Further, it's not our, not only our only hope, but it's our certain hope. Hear this grace. It is entirely, God's grace is entirely sufficient for whatever conflict you're in. No matter how long standing, no matter how deep, no matter how painful, no matter how confusing, no matter how widespread, no matter how consuming, God's grace is sufficient. The conflict may be significant, but learn this phrase, he gives more grace. What James is about to command is not a formula then. It's not a formula. It's not a, it's not a secret combination to a safe. It is a description of one specific way that God has chosen to distribute his grace to his hurting, conflicting people when they conflict among themselves. Practically then, consider the Christian conflict in your life and allow your hope to be renewed. Maybe it's been sucked away. It's been going on so long, you just, you've sort of given up on the fact that there might be healing that could come. Practically consider the Christian conflict in your life and allow your hope to be renewed by the promise that God gives more grace. If you've come to believe there's no hope and or that that conflict is beyond help, believe James when he says, but he gives more grace. Allow your despair to dissolve this morning, Grace, in the good news that God has promised to give more grace than whatever strength the conflict has. So where your conflict has you weary and frustrated and discouraged, go to your knees in prayer. Cry out to God for mercy and grace in the knowledge that he will give it and that it will be enough. James tells us not only will he do so, but he tells us precisely how he will do so. How do we get this grace, you might ask? That's how James ends this passage. Six ways. He gives us grace. Six ways. Here's, I think, the best way to picture this. So I want you to have this image in mind. This pool of the grace of God. It's as deep as it needs to be. It's deeper than any conflict you ever have had or will endure. It was won by the cross of Christ. It was secured. The disposition of God is for it to be in your life because of what Jesus did in his suffering and death and resurrection. And you're over here broken and needy. The question is, 
what spans that gap? <laughs> the pool is over here. It's, it's, it's all sufficient. It's our only hope, but it's our certain hope. And over here we are with this conflict. It's hard and difficult. It, it hurts. It stings. How do we get that grace? How do we get to that pool? Christ purchased it. He, he filled it and fills it continually. He's given God the disposition to long for us to have it. How do we get it? James tells us there's this, this pipe <laughs> that comes between this pool of the grace of God and, and us, and it has six parts to it. We got to put them together. That's what he tells us. It's God's grace that will reveal this to us, cause us to want this, and let the, let the grace flow freely between them. But he tells us what we must do to see these come together. Here they are. You ready? Let me just say that's not unusual. God, God does this all over the place in the Bible. He's chosen to use words as a conduit to save sinners from their sin. And so we proclaim the gospel. We don't save people, but the gospel is what links the, the work of Christ on the cross to needy sinners. It is the gospel. God has chosen to make the gospel a conduit between those two things. We, we need to be nur- nourished in our faith and strengthened to persevere. And so God gives us ordinances, means of grace, and the Lord's Supper and baptism. And so we take part in them. It's all over in the Bible that God's grace comes to us through particular conduits. Here's a six-part conduit that God has given us. Again, then, lean into this. Or you have conflict or, or to prevent it from happening, six, six things. Number one, we see it in verses 6 and 10. Humble yourself, grace. Humble yourself. Are you in any type of conflict with another Christian? The first step in receiving this pool of grace, the sufficient pool of grace, is to humble yourself. Look at 6. But he gives more grace. We just saw that. Therefore, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then and then verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Pride is to place yourself above, above people and even above God. Humility is to place yourself below people and God. It is a particular kind of pride that rejects God and befriends the world, and that kind of pride causes conflict. Likewise, it is a particular kind of humility that acknowledges God as God, and that kind of humility prevents and ends and heals conflict. Consider it carefully, Grace. If you want God's grace to flow and conflict in your life to end, you have to stop believing you know more than God. You have to stop believing that the other person is the main problem in your own wisdom. You have to stop trusting in yourself to fix things. You have to stop exalting yourself above God and others, and instead you have to humble yourself below God and others. Pride causes conflict, James says. Humility ends it. If you want God's grace to flow and you do, and I do. Forsaking pride and embracing humility will work. It will end conflict. James does not offer this as a suggestion to try. Your car's not starting. You go to your buddy. You say, hey, my car's not starting. And he'll throw out three or four ideas. Give him a shot. One of them might work. It's worked for me in the past. That's not what we're talking about. He's not giving a suggestion to try. He's giving us a promise from the Lord. If you will humble yourself before, below, 
If you will humble yourself before the Lord, he will exalt you above the petty desires that caused the horizontal conflict to begin with. When you humble yourself, the conflict-causing hold that friendship with the world has on you will break, and you'll be free to love and serve and lay your life down for others, rather than fighting them for what you shouldn't even want in the first place, at least not the way you want it. And they can't really give you anyway. Number one, humble yourself. Number two, submit yourself to God. The second aspect of God's conflict-ending grace conduit is to submit ourselves to him. This is the natural outworking of humbling yourself from our proper lowly position of humility. Having relinquished our sense of being king of our own lives, wise in our own eyes, right in this conflict, it is the most natural thing in the world to submit ourselves to God. When that's where you are, it is the most natural thing in the world to submit yourself to God, to his authority over you, his commands and promises to you, his plans and purposes for you. That's why James says in verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. When we want what God wants, this, to me, is one of the most significant things you'll hear today. When, when we want what God wants us to want, in the ways he wants it for us, and from the places he says that it is to be found. When we want what God wants, conflict dies for its source. The source of conflict entirely dries up. Where would conflict come from among God's people if we all let go of the hold that this world has on us? When we gladly turn the other cheek and give our tunic also and are willingly defrauded of anything on earth, all things God commands to us, what is there to fight about? <laughs> What's, what is there to fight amongst each other about when we let go of the things this world has and offers and that we've bought into and in our friendship with it? Submitting ourselves to God is the second part of the pipe that allows his conflict ending, preventing, and restoring grace to flow. Third, resist the devil. The third, the third aspect of conflict, conflict ending grace conduit by God's design is resisting the devil. He wrote, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Another promise. It's not a suggestion. Grace, the devil loves anything that distracts God's people from God and his plans. He loves anything that fosters pride or resistance to God. His tactics are many, including, as we see here, creating sparks of church conflict and then fanning the, the flame when it takes, when it ignites. We see in Job, we see in Jesus' temptation, we see in the several New Testament descriptions of the devil and his tactics, how he works and how he creates conflict, mainly through lies and flattery. Those are his two main weapons to create conflict, lies and flattery. James calls his readers to acknowledge these things, to acknowledge that the devil's lies, to acknowledge the devil's lies and flattery for what they are. Hollow, deadly promises. They offer what they can't deliver and deliver what they don't offer and reject them completely. This will work, Grace. This is not a suggestion. God's grace will flow to us when we resist the devil. He will flee from us, James promises. We often 
we often fall into one of two errors. We either function as if the devil doesn't exist at all, or we act as if he's almost as powerful as God is. He is real and active, but he is also wounded and ultimately defeated. I love how one commentator put it. The Lord Jesus defeated him at his temptation and ultimately defeated him at the cross. He left him vulnerable. He cannot hold, this is still a quote, he, that is the devil, cannot hold a sinner against his will, grace. He cannot even lead a believer into sin without our will. When you feel the devil's pull towards friendship with the world, which is the devil's domain in any form, remind yourself of two things. First, the devil's best promises are at best half-truths and always end in destruction. And second, that God's promises are always sure and always end in pleasures forevermore. Do you want conflict to end in your life with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Humble yourself. Submit yourself to God and resist the devil. He will flee from you, and so will his temptation to the things of earth. Fourth, draw near to God. When you humble yourself, submitting yourself to God flows naturally from that. When you submit yourself to God, you are by definition resisting the devil. And when you do those things together, Where will you turn to find what your pride and your plans and the devil promised but couldn't deliver? Where will you, that is, where will you go for, for joy and peace and security and blessing and significance? Having forsaken the places you were looking for them in, where will you go now? James says that you ought to do so in the one and only place they can actually be found in nearness to God. What's more, just as his command to flee the devil in it, just as with it, James did not offer this as a possibility to try, but as a promise of certain grace. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Do you see this pattern? He's he's so kind, God is, through James, to tell us not only what to do, but that it will certainly work. Humble yourself, and God will exalt you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And remember, that's not merely a means to ending conflict. It is that, and a certain means at that. It's not merely that. Drawing near to God in intimate fellowship is the beginning of the gospel, the very purpose for which we were made, and the great reward for all whose hope is in Jesus. That's awesome, Grace. It doesn't just end conflict. It's practice for heaven, for our eternal occupation. It is a means of God's conflict ending grace. But even more, it is the meaning of life. Draw near to God, grace, and he will draw near to you. Fifth, repent. Cleanse your hands, verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This would have been familiar language to James's primarily Jewish audience. Washing and purification were directly tied to proper worship among the Jews. In the Old Testament, much more than a sacrificial ritual, however, James called on his readers to turn from their sin, both externally, the, the things they were doing, the sinful acts they were committing. It's the cleansing of your hands, wash away the external dirt, and, and internally. Purify your hearts. 
In other words, James was charging his humble, submissive, devil-resisting, God-fellowshipping readers to stop their fighting and to do so by forsaking the hearts that longed for the things that caused the conflict in the first place. Among God's people, dirty hands belong to those who are committing acts of sin. So he calls them sinners. And wayward hearts belonging to those flirting with the world, friends of the world, double-minded people. One mind on God and one mind on the world. Both cause, both, both. Sinning, double-mindedness, external sins and internal heart problems, both cause conflict and both need to be rejected, repented of, turned from, for God's grace to flow and conflict to, to die. Lastly, sixthly, lament. Lament. Genuine lamentation must mark those who long for conflict to end and God's grace to flow. Conflict in your life among the people of God, it flows mainly from friendship with the world, which is spiritual adultery, the healing and help and and, and rejection of it comes ultimately from the grace of God, and God's grace comes mainly through a six-part conduit. The sixth part is lamentation. The kind of conflict James described among his readers was, as we saw, exceedingly dishonoring to God. It was adulterous. It was inconsistent with their natures and massively destructive to their community. This was sin of the most grievous kind. Grace, when God grants true repentance, when he causes us to see our sin for what it is and gives us the desire to turn from it, he does so by opening our eyes to the true, vile, horrific, despicable nature of our sin. Our sin is not just a little bad. It's not just a, a little dirt. It's not just a small offense. It's not just a little wandering, or I could have done better, or I messed up, or it is rightly seen in light of the holiness of God, vile, horrific, despicable. When God opens our eyes to those things, we're embarrassed, ashamed, convicted, brought low. And when those things are present, there will be lamentation. And so James says, be wretched. Be wretched and mourn and weep. There's a heaving. There's a, there's a tearing of garments and a putting on of sackcloth and a putting ashes on our head. That was the normal practice. Let your laughter, you're, you're walking around in the midst of this conflict laughing and joking like a fool, Proverbs says. Let your laughter, let that fake laughter be turned to mourning and this fake joy be turned to gloom. So let me ask you, I know you felt this. You, you felt the seemingly inadequate healing power that comes from a, a trickle of remorse. Haven't you? Someone has hurt you deeply. They, they've sinned grievously in a significant way. Sort of acknowledge they might have done something wrong. Maybe it was more a misinterpretation, or maybe they imply you're blowing it out of proportion. They've sinned against you in a significant way, but they respond with a, a basic acknowledgement of their wrongdoing, but nothing that even looks like grief from a 100 miles away. 
We've all felt that, haven't we? The, the seemingly inadequate healing power of a, a, a little trickle, a drip of remorse. It's good to forgive them even in that. Christ, Christ shows us that we can forgive apart from anyone deserving. But that's not very healing, is it? On the other hand, the more they lament the true wickedness of their sin and grieve the pain that it caused us, the easier it is to forgive and the freer healing comes. You felt that, haven't you, Grace? I have. That's what James was calling for for here. Genuine, genuine lament. His readers were not there yet. They hadn't gotten to that point, which is why he commanded these things. But we, we know from God's promises that when they get there, when they get there, there would be true grief. There would be genuine lamentation over their wickedness. It would lead them to a swift then rejection of it, a repentance over it. All of that then would be quickly replaced. You don't, you don't stay in lamentation. It's in your lamentation that healing comes to you and your relationship with God, and therefore it can come horizontally as well. And, and quickly it's replaced by overwhelming gratitude, and we sing amazing grace. We remember the gospel. The grace of God flows freely to us and then through us, flooding us and the people in our lives that we're conflicting with, with a new sanctified set of desires for ourselves. We forsake friendship of the world and love God and go to him for the things that we're made for. We're we're sanctified with a new set of desires towards God and towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And all of that. In all of that, conflict ends and healing begins. Here it is all again in conclusion. Conflict among us comes. Are you in conflict with, with a believer in Christ? Here's where it comes from. It comes when we forge friendship with the world and forsake, in that at least, friendship with God. That causes us to want things we shouldn't want in ways we shouldn't want them and from places that can't give them. Blinded to all of this, though, in our sin, we go after the things of earth and fight anyone who gets in our way. That's where conflict comes from in the church, James says. For this adulterous conflict among us to end, grace is what we need most, the grace of God. That grace was purchased for us on the cross of Jesus, and it comes to us in this way through a particular means. Specifically, it comes when we humble ourselves, submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God in fellowship, repent and lament. May these things mark us at all times, Grace. May this be who we are as a church. May this be how we live every minute of every day in order that conflict would always be held at bay from us. For whenever we are characterized by these things, conflict will never be able to gain a foothold. And may we be swift to return to them whenever conflict rises from our neglect of them. This is a precious gift. As you lean into, as you press into maturity in Christ, this is a precious gift of God through Jesus. May we receive it with all the gratitude and obedience it deserves. And may God bring healing and help to us as we do, as he has promised.